Uh, good evening, uh, everybody. Welcome to this uh, public lecture here at the uh, London School of Economics, uh, organized uh, through LSE Ideas, which is the uh, school's foreign policy center and think tank, um, and which, of course, Linda is associated and very proud to have her uh, working with us in LSE Ideas. I don't think the speaker this evening needs too much introduction, but I think that's what I'm here to do, so I will do it. Um, as I say about Linda, she has more than one string to her bow. Uh, a seasoned broadcaster uh, on economics generally, and particularly on Asian economics, but many more things beside. One time a corporate lawyer, uh, a distinguished academic, educated at Yale, Harvard, New York University in Oxford, currently adjunct professor of economics at St. Edmunds Hall, Oxford University, a visiting professor at Beijing University, and I'm very pleased to say uh, a visiting senior fellow here at uh, LSE Ideas. Uh, Linda has written widely and brilliantly on many subjects over many years, on macroeconomics, the future of Asian trade, the law and economics of globalization, enterprising China, China and globalization, the economy of China, I think you know a little bit about China, Linda, uh, and of course the book that she'll be talking on here uh, this evening, The Great Economist, how their ideas can help us today, and it's also picture perfect, so all the great economists are on the front there for you. After the lecture, uh, if you want to go and purchase a copy of the book, please do so, and then come back in here with the book itself. So, with no further ado, I wonder if we could welcome Linda here, not for the first time, to the LSE to speak on the great economists, how their ideas can help us today. Thank you very much. Linda, over to you. Thank you very much, Mick. Um, good evening. Thank you all for um, joining um, us this evening. Um, I'm really delighted to be here um, to talk about the great economists, their lives, ideas, and um, hopefully how they can help us um, today. And I would just want to say a word about the ideas that I'm going to um, cover. So Victor Hugo said, there's nothing more powerful than an idea whose time has come. And looking back on history, uh, I've just highlighted some of the areas in which ideas, economic ideas, have contributed to a change in the way that society um, has been organized. So um, I've highlighted a few here. The end of protectionism. Uh, this is the repeal of the protectionist corn laws in 1846 that um, ha had imposed very high tariffs on grains. Um, the emergence of the welfare state over socialism after World War II in the 1950s. Um, and then more recently, in the late 1980s, um, the fall of communism. So there are many more um, incidents, of course, but I chose these to illustrate that um, economic ideas play a part in changing the way a society thinks and in solving some of the problems that um, societies have faced. But there's no claim whatsoever that economists are wholly responsible for any of these main incidents. In fact, a lot of um, societies, a lot of economies, the way the structure is set up is 
probably more a product of politicians, business people, lobbyists. Um, but that doesn't, that's not to suggest that ideas don't play a role. And that's what I wanted to focus on today. The ideas that have changed the world from over the last two centuries um, by great economists, who by the way, almost always challenged the status quo. So each of the um, events that I describe here were economists arguing against the status quo, um, pushing back against the advent of, say, socialism, um, which came into the fore in the interwar period, or communism in the former USSR vying with uh, capitalism at the time. So I think the, um, the thing to stress is what I'm going to try and cover are the ideas that have changed the way we think, but of course uh, they are one part of the history of uh, the last 200 years. And the other thing to say is the great economists that I'm going to cover disagreed with each other a lot. <laughs> <laughs> and um, economists are also uh, increasingly uh, not known for being uh, very understandable. And so <laughs> um, I think um, even though economists are very influential, there's a reason why there's so many jokes about economists. Um, so I'll just give you my favorite one, which um, actually, I'm not sure it was a joke, it was just an observation by a former US congressman. He said, um, economics is the science of telling you things you've known your whole life, but in a language that you can't understand. <laughs> um, and so the, <laughs> the great economists that I'm going to, <laughs> to cover, and, by, and this, these are just the selection that I um, picked from uh, a wide group of potential candidates. I picked them on uh, two grounds. Uh, one is that they were all generalists. So these are economists who looked at the big picture, even if the um, solutions were imperfect. Um, their answers were incomplete, and sometimes they were just wrong. <laughs> um, but they, they tackled what the big issues of the day um, was. And the second um, thing that organizes this group of great economists, who are almost all of an earlier vintage, is that they this book in particular is focused on the structure of the economy in terms of where markets work, where they don't, and economic growth and development. So it's a very macro approach to, um, to economics. So the great economists that I'm going to um, cover uh, range from, you would have, you'll not be surprised to see, Adam Smith um, up there as the father of um, economics, um, writing in the 18th century, so it's roughly grouped as classical economists, him and David Ricardo. Um, below the arrow um, is Fisher Marshall Solo, neoclassical economists, and they're sort of towards the end of the free market, um, but the free market obviously has believers who go further, so you've got Joseph Schumpeter, Friedrich Hayek, Milton Friedman, um, and then on the other end, uh, you've got the Keynesian Revolution. Uh, Joan Robinson is, is a disciple of Keynes. Um, she later rejected Keynesianism and moved further left, so I've kind of positioned her diagonally that way. 
Um, and then there's Douglas North who said, none of these mainstream neoclassical models explain um, why some countries um, are poor. And so he rejected the lot. And then of course, I also cover Karl Marx, um, and who's uh, very far on the other side of the spectrum. So what I'm gonna try and do over the next um, half an hour or so before we open this up for discussion, I'm gonna take you um, on a galloping pace through the great economic thinkers of the last 200 years. Um, and then I'm going to um, highlight some of the big economic challenges that their thinking uh, might be able to help us organize our thinking around. Um, so as I say, um, this, the questions I'm gonna focus on are questions around growth and development. And each of these great economists were the originators the first ones to put forward the seminal ideas behind a particular question, such as David Ricardo and international trade. So uh, buckle up, um, 200 years of economic thinking in the next 20 minutes. So the first one is Adam Smith, who I mentioned. He's the father of um, economics. He started classical economics. Um, Adam Smith um, is a Scottish economist born in 1723. He lived until 1790, 1790. So his work was done during um, the very early part of the Industrial Revolution. He wrote The Wealth of Nations, which is still today um, probably the seminal book in economics. Um, he was the one who wrote about the invisible hand of markets, how um, prices and quantities um, were determined by supply and demand. And from that, you get the market mechanism um, and this led to uh, laissez-faire economics, um, which he never used, um, but is derived from Smith's work. Um, and he did believe in limited government. So one of the things that he wrote about in The Wealth of Nations, um, he said, there is no art which one government sooner learns of another than that of draining money from the pockets of the people. Um, among his known eccentricities was that he banged his head against the wall while dictating the wealth of nations, which he had to do because his handwriting was terrible. Um, so Smith set up the classical school. Um, David Ricardo, who was a successful investor, um, he, uh, he bet the right way at the, at the Battle of Waterloo. After he made his fortune, he um, became bored, so he went to Bath on a holiday as you do. He picked up a copy of The Wealth of Nations, and he, very late in life, um, started writing about economics. And um, he is known as the father of international trade. Um, he's the one who came up with the concept of comparative advantage, which is the basic premise of international trade, which is countries specialize in what they're least bad at. So. In other words, um, China could be a cheaper producer than Britain of everything, but um, Britain will still specialize in what it's least bad at. He also coined uh, this concept of rent-seeking. So he was very much part of the movement against protectionism in the 18th century, um, in the 19th century. And he uh, was very against 
um, landowners who were protecting agriculture for their own profits. So he thought they were rent-seeking, and that concept is obviously widely used today. Ricardo was a theorist, which in his day uh, was not a compliment. So mm -hmm. Joseph Schumpeter, um, a great economist that I'll come to, coined the term Ricardian vice. He said that's when you introduce assumptions into a simplified representation of the economy in order to produce the desired results. Nobody does that, surely. <laughs> um, and so through the, um, the arguments of Adam Smith and David Ricardo, um, especially in the 19th century, as I said, led to the repeal of the Corn Law several years after his death in 1846, and for Britain established um, a much more global outlook in terms of trade. Now, as you would imagine, economists, as I've already hinted, they don't agree. So the next great economist I'm going to um, introduce you to is Karl Marx. Um, so Karl Marx um, was born in 1818. Um, he died in 1883. He's known as the father of communism. Um, he wrote the Communist Manifesto. Um, one of the lines in the Communist Manifesto is, may the ruling classes tremble at the thought of a communist revolution. The proletarians have nothing to lose in that revolution, but their chains, they have a world to win. And um, so he believed that capitalism will inevitably result in crisis, which then will result in revolution, and then will result in communism. Um, he originally thought that um, crisis would be like the long depression of the late 19th century. So the 1880s was the first time we had a massive increase in unemployment and a big downturn in the economy. That's when unemployment was first used um, as a term in economics. So the long depression came and went. Didn't, didn't result in revolution. So then he changed his mind and decided that revolution crisis will come when inequality is too high, and that will result in the proletarian uprising. So when I come to the issues around China, I'll come back to this, uh, to this question. Um, I should say that during his lifetime, Karl Marx uh, never observed how Marxism would um, engulf sways of the world, including um, the formation of the Soviet Union in the early part of the 20th century. In his own lifetime, he was actually quite disappointed often um, about revolutions um, and what they promised and never deliver. So he was often disappointed, including with the French Revolution. So in 1851, when Louis Napoleon Bonaparte titled himself Emperor Napoleon III, much as his uncle Napoleon Bonaparte had, Marx wrote, history repeats itself, the first time as tragedy, the second time as farce. So, Alfred Marshall. Um, Marx, by the way, really was sort of on his strand on, on his own. <laughs> um, so now we're back to Alfred Marshall, who um, is known as the father of neoclassical economics. Alfred Marshall was born in 1842. He died in 1924. This established the Cambridge School of Economics. Essentially, he took what was known as the marginalist revolution, um, and he used that concept to create demand and supply curves, which brought the classical economist's work more into um, the uh, the late Victorian era. Um, the late Victorian era was also when the consensus around economics uh, broke down, and that's when some of the most interesting work happens. Uh, protectionism was again on the rise. There was an 
debate about what to do with um, the welfare state, what to do with um, helping the poor. After all, he was a late uh, Victorian, and that was very much um, in the uh, thoughts, in his thoughts. Um, but he still was a neoclassical economist. Uh, but I think one quote of his captures the slight change um, that you began to see in the early part of the 20th century. So Alfred Marshall wrote, the function of government is to govern as little as possible, but not to do as little as possible. Um, so that leads me to Irving Fisher. He started the American neoclassical economics um, school. Um, his work shifted the headquarters of economics to the United States from Britain. So Irving Fisher um, was probably uh, known for a number of things during his lifetime. He was born in 1867. He died in 1947. Um, to economists, he's known for debt deflation theory, which we have begun to hear a lot about after Japan and the worries over debt that we um, have seen over the last few years, uh, the quantity theory of money. A lot of his work is fundamental to the subject. But he himself viewed those as academic pursuits. He was much better known in America uh, for his work against prohibition. Uh, this was the banning of alcoholic beverages. Um, he was also a big proponent of health because um, he nearly died from tuberculosis early in his career, so he always felt this urgency to, to work and to produce um, things of great value. So he was also an inventor. You know, okay, this may not be familiar with some of you who are digital natives, but for the rest of you, do you remember index cards? <laughs> so for the digital natives, let me describe it. It's a card with little notches. <laughs> cut out from the bottom, you put it in a Rolodex. And before the iPhone, that's how you found your contacts. You go through the Rolodex. He invented that. Um, and it did make him a fortune. Um, but that only makes him a fortune as an inventor. Um, to make a real fortune, he had to do what everybody was doing in the 1920s. He invested in the stock market. So um, right before Black Tuesday in 1929, the eminent economist said, Markets have reached a permanently high plateau. Don't worry. And then um, he lost his fortune and died heavily in debt. But because of how badly he made this call, it affected his reputation as well. And that's why he's normally not included in books like this one. And yet his work um, has been so influential. And my favorite Irving Fisher quote, he was also, again, a generalist who worked on lots of things. Um, he wrote, our society will always remain an unstable and explosive compound as long as political power is vested in the masses and economic power in the classes. Either the plutocracy will buy up the democracy or democracy will vote away the plutocracy. Um, so now, we go to Keynes, John Maynard Keynes in the Keynesian Revolution. Keynes was born in 1883. He died in 1946. So he and his disciples essentially rejected Alfred Marshall and the Cambridge School of Economics. Um, he, in a very famous uh, quote critiquing um, the way that neoclassical economists thought that economies would write 
itself. He thought this was not the right approach. He was much more focused on the short run and the medium run. So the quote, the full quote um, that he um, uh, gave, which I think captures this, is that, but this long run is a misleading guide to affairs. In the long run, we are all dead. Economists set themselves too easy, too useless a task if in tempestuous seasons they can only tell us that when the storm is long past, the ocean is flat again. So in his general theory um, and his contributions to ending the Great Depression included state intervention in the economy, government spending, and much like the current debate over austerity, um, his opponents um, argued it would just increase the budget deficit. Um, and um, Keynes um, won the day then, but as I'll show you later on, um, when his theories couldn't explain stagflation in the 70s, which is high inflation and high unemployment, um, a new set of thinkers came to the forefront. But Keynes's impact is still, I think, very much prevalent um, in the current uh, formulation of economics, which is called the new neoclassical synthesis. In other words, today's economists pick and choose all the best bits from Keynesian's classical economists and monetarists and throw it all together. But uh, my favorite quote of Keynes is actually around his work on animal spirits. So classical economists believe that investment um, meant that savings just got translated into investment. And Keynes's whole belief is that it doesn't work that smoothly. Um, things are very sticky in the short run. He also had doubts about um, how well-informed markets, investors and markets really were. So my favorite Keynes quote is actually, he said, a speculator is one who runs risks of which he is aware and an investor is one who runs risks of which he is unaware. Um, I'm going to get to a King's Disciple in a moment, but I'm going to go through a couple of Austrians uh, who started the Austrian School of Economics. So during this neoclassical revolution, the early 20th century, they were essentially still competing against two other schools, the Austrian School of Economics, which had its roots in the 19th century, and also the German Historical School, which is about using history as a context to understanding the economy. So one of the best known um, Austrians uh, is Joseph Schumpeter. Um, he, many of you will know, is the guy who coined the phrase creative destruction. So it is the essence of capitalism not to be stable. He rejected the neoclassical ideas that somehow all firms were identical and everyone competed selling the same goods. He's the one who introduced the ideas of business strategy and his work documented the incredible rise of companies, um, small and big, during a period in the United States um, which, when it was undergoing um, really the second industrial revolution, this massive growth in the early 20th century as he had laterally gone to um, Harvard. Um, his best known work, Capitalism, Socialism and Democracy, is one example of why these great economists were generalists. Um, he didn't just narrow his focus to say he's studying entrepreneurs. <laughs> He essentially argued that the essence of capitalism is one that um, 
should win out over the prevailing debate of the day, which is around socialism, as I say, um, which was beginning to come to the forefront in the interwar period. So capitalism, socialism, and democracy was really about um, an ideological battle that was beginning to wage, because I mentioned before, Marxism was also becoming much more accepted across the world. And Schumpeter's ideas were to equate capitalism with um, democracy and with freedom. Um, Schumpeter, um, the best quote I think that can summarize Schumpeter is actually a quote um, by Winston Churchill in 1945, who observed, the inherent vice of capitalism is the unequal sharing of blessings. The inherent virtue of socialism is the equal sharing of miseries. Um, his fellow Austrian, and we are here at the London School of Economics, um, who really started um, the debate between the Austrian school and the Keynesians, LSE against Cambridge, is Friedrich Hayek. So Friedrich Hayek um, was born in 1899. He died in 1992. And his ideas in The Road to Serfdom, which is his best known work, um, again, equated this very free market, free uh, freedom with capitalism. And he was a very big uh, proponent of the free market um, ideology, especially with the Thatcher and Reagan revolutions of the 1980s. Um, and he died, I mentioned, in 1992. And a lot of his work inspired the fall of communism. Um, his quote um, around this issue is, fascism is the state reached after communism has proved an illusion. Um, and so the, he's often criticized for not being very um, articulate. So part of the challenge as an economist um, is economic ideas um, are not always the most fun to discuss. Um, and he often, I think, struggled against Keynes, not necessarily because of his ideas, but because Keynes was, uh, which was a much better speaker, for lack of a better description. Um, so Hayek apparently spoke with such a heavy Austrian accent. His students at the LSE asked him to lecture in German because it'd be more understandable. <laughs> um, but still, he died in 1992 in time to see the fall of communism, really um, his life's work. Um, and so therefore, the other quote I'm going to give you um, that captures, I think, his, his stance is not from Hayek, it's actually from Ronald Reagan. So Ronald Reagan said, the, the nine most terrifying words in the English language are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. Um, let's go back to the Keynesians, um, Joan Robinson. So Joan Robinson was born in 1903. She died in 1983. Joan Robinson was one of the inner circle, um, Keynes' inner circle, of about five Cambridge economists who he trusted to give him comments on the general theory. Joan Robinson uh, was married to one of those economists, Austin Robinson, um, and she had an affair with another one of those economists, Richard Kahn. Um, <laughs> 
The, um, <laughs> I should have said at the beginning, um, half of this book is about biographies and the, and the lives and the colorful lives of these economists. And a lot of them had really fascinating, colorful lives, um, multiple marriages, you know, affairs, all that kind of stuff. But the one thing that was struck me about reading um, and then writing about their lives is we think of them as great thinkers, seminal ideas that transformed their worlds. Um, a lot of them were really self-critical of their work. Um, they didn't think they were productive enough. They didn't think they were doing enough. Adam Smith said that his manuscripts should be burned after his death because they just were not um, up to scratch. Friedrich Hayek that I mentioned, he gave himself a mark every day about how much effort productivity he had exerted, and he often ended the week with a mark of 50. So um, I found it, I, yeah, so it was, uh, it's fascinating, I think, um, going into their lives. So Joan Robinson, um, she's actually the pioneer of imperfect competition. So she's the one who developed this concept of monopsony, which is the uh, labor market's equivalent to monopoly. So we know about monopoly power. She wrote about labor markets in particular in this way. So she was a Keynesian disciple. So imperfect competition as a field arose because the Keynesians rejected perfectly clearing markets, and that was proposed by neoclassical economists. So um, imperfect competition has now led to a number of other fields, um, also started by uh, some of the economists working, uh, racing against her to establish the field at the time, including Harvard's Edward Chamberlain, who started to do work on industrial organization. But Robinson's work was, she centered it on labor markets. So her work can explain disguised or hidden unemployment. So it's unemployment can be hidden if, for instance, um, you have a part-time job and you really rather have a full-time job. In the United States, they actually measure that, and that is her concept. Um, the best way I can illustrate this is that I was at a lecture by uh, President Clinton, and um, this is during the time when he, uh, you know, presidents, they go around, they give these speeches about how many jobs they've created, and um, a woman in the audience rose, raised her hand and said, Yes, Mr. President, I have three of those jobs, but I still can't make ends meet. And that's a form of hidden unemployment. So her work allows us to understand where this comes about and importantly, what you can do about it. Um, she started off as a Keynesian. In fact, her career was extraordinary in the 1930s. Um, she hadn't had really uh, done much in economics. And by the end of that decade, she had become one of the pioneers of a new field. Um, so it's an extraordinary rise for a woman at a time when women face a number of barriers, not just in economics, but generally in society. But she went from being a Keynesian to an admirer of communism. So later in her career, she decided that Keynesianism couldn't explain the big questions around economic development. So she became much more um, admiring of communist regimes. And she's, she was known for wearing uh, Vietnamese peasant outfits to deliver her lectures at Cambridge to make that point. Um, and so uh, perhaps for that reason, perhaps for other reasons, um, she was never awarded the highest prize in economics, the Nobel Prize, which started in 1969 during her lifetime. Um, 
and, but she still is the most influential female economist of the 20th century. Um, my favorite quote of hers um, is this one. The misery of being exploited by capitalists is nothing compared to the misery of not being exploited at all. Um, Milton Friedman. So those were the Keynesians. We are now moving to the other side of the spectrum. So Milton Friedman uh, was born in 1912, um, and he died in 2006. He was a monetarist, so this is the belief that money um, has no impact on the economy in the long run. He was a libertarian. He believed that all drugs should be equalized, uh, legalized. Um, he, a few of his quotes I think that capture his, um, his thinking is, if you put the federal government in charge of the Sahara da Desert, in five years there'd be a shortage of sand. Um, his, um, his, his contribution to economics was actually in work that he co-wrote, one of the big contributions, with Anna Jacobson Schwartz, A Monetary History of the United States. They completely changed our understanding of what caused um, the Great Crash and the Great Depression. Um, the Great Contraction refers to the money supply, and it was their work that started measuring the money supply that actually changed um, our understanding of this crisis, which then became uh, very important in the 2008 crisis uh, when um, late, when central bankers like Ben Bernanke and others um, learned the lessons of the Great Depression and implemented policy to prevent um, a repeat of that. Um, and he, um, let me move on to, oh, let me give you one more quote about uh, Milton Friedman. Uh, he later in life became a libertarian, and um, like many of the economists that I discuss, he made a lot more money writing uh, books that didn't have much to do with economics. <laughs> but um, one of my favorite, um, he, he was very much a proponent of the free market, freedom, capitalism, and um, one of his arguments is um, around this issue is, um, he, a quote from him, underlying most arguments against the free market is a lack of belief in freedom itself. And one of his other quotes that I think is um, worth remembering is, one of the great mistakes is to judge policies and programs by their intentions rather than their results. Um, so he's very influential throughout his life. Um, moving to Douglas North. So Douglas North was born in 1920. He passed away in, in 2015. Douglas North is the father of new institutional economics. Um, this is a field that rejected neoclassical growth models as not being able to explain why, even today, um, much less the time in which he did most of his work, um, most nations were not prosperous. Even today, only a quarter of countries are high income. So this led him to work with political scientists um, in the 1980s, and they developed this field um, which really captured how institutions needed to be thought about and why and how they were missing from mainstream economic models. Um, so his work um, on institutions is now being taken up by others and there's a lot of focus on history matters, path dependence, and using this to help explain why nations fail. So um, a quote I think that captures um, his belief in why 
um, economists um, should move away from this, as he put it, simple modeling of government as a vehicle for redistribution, <laughs> which is how um, governments are usually modeled. Um, he says we're missing the bigger picture. The evolution of government from its medieval mafia-like character to that embodying modern legal institutions is a major part of the history of freedom. So I think his work has begun to really lay some of the foundations for thinking, rethinking economic development. Um, so the final great economist I'm going to cover is um, the economist the previous one rejected. <laughs> so um, Robert Solo, um, born in 1924 and is still working today at the age of 93. Um, he's the one who, in his articles in the 1950s, uh, developed the neoclassical growth models that govern um, our um, thinking today. It's called the solo growth model. And he focuses on how, how countries grow, um, labor capital, um, and technology. Um, and I think some of his most interesting comments are actually around technology. Um, so the solo paradox um, is based on his quote, um, in 1987 where he said, you can see the computer age everywhere except in the productivity data. Um, and he, um, my favorite quote of his is that he said, I always thought the main difference the computer made in my office was that before the computer, my secretary used to work for me and afterward I worked for my secretary. Um, so Robert Solo, um, as I say, still, uh, still working um, as an economist, um, is his work, as well as um, some of the others I'm going to go through when I go through these issues, um, captures this current state of economics, which is a combination of neoclassical with elements of Keynesianism and monetarism. Um, so uh, this brings us to, I think, um, before we get to the big challenges, the rivalries. Um, I mentioned that lots of economists are diametrically opposed to each other, and I think um, one of the most interesting um, debates that economists have had um, are over the Great Depression and the Great Recession. So John Maynard Keynes um, diametrically um, opposed to Friedrich Hayek in trying to explain the Great Depression. Their battle has been updated in a rap battle <laughs> by two people pretending to be Keynes and Hayek. And this rap battle, think of it as a, pre, as a precursor to Hamilton. <laughs> there, this rap battle has been viewed more than six million times. Um, and a later version um, over the Great Recession is called Fight of the Century. So um, if you Google this um, under YouTube, um, you're going to, I think, um, find that uh, their debates are still very current uh, today. So let me go through our economic challenges um, and then pause for um, discussion of these. Um, our economic challenges that I focus on are around growth, and not just the speed, but the quality of growth, which is also why drawing on history and the ideas of the great economists really um, 
mattered because the great economists from Adam Smith uh, to many of the later ones as well were philosophers. They were not technicians. They were um, those who embraced the big concepts around um, not just what, how markets worked, but also what it does to individuals. Should there be a welfare state? What is utility? How you maximize it? Um, and so the big economic challenges I've highlighted try and touch on not just the speed of growth, but actually the quality of growth. So I cover things like, should government rebalance the economy? Do trade deficits matter? Um, can China become rich? Uh, is inequality inevitable? Are we at risk of repeating the 1930s? Remember the 1930s was characterized by debt deflation and a second recession in 1937, when everybody thought that the economy was on the mend. Um, to invest or not invest? Should government be investing? The austerity debate. Clearly, we have a lot of challenges, so there's another page. <laughs> what drives innovation? <laughs> Can the inventions of the digital age ever match up to those of the first and second industrial revolutions? Can our smartphones ever produce economy-wide productivity improvements in the same way as electrification or the internal combustion engine and those kinds of questions. What can we learn from financial crises? And this chapter is really about um, capitalism, the future of capitalism. Why are wages so low? Joan Robinson's thoughts there. Are central banks doing too much? Um, why are so few countries prosperous? Do we face a slow growth future? And is globalization in trouble? Um, I'll say a word about Paul Samuelson towards the end. Um, he is another great economist and really the one that brought together the different strands of economics. So just a few thoughts on each of these great challenges um, before I pause. So should government rebalance the economy? Um, we've heard a lot of this, uh, quite a lot, after the financial crisis. This is a chart that shows you in the UK, um, output of manufacturing and employment as a share of GDP have been steadily declining since the 1980s. Even in the United States, um, where there has been some reshoring of manufacturing, um, and this is before President Trump took office, uh, because of the shale revolution, because of rising wages in China, um, energy costs are low in America, competitors had higher costs, manufacturing is actually already going back to the United States. But even there, employment hasn't really risen, and that is the conundrum for this rebalancing debate. Even if manufacturing increases um, in terms of output, it's going to be because of automation, robotics. Um, employment in manufacturing is, on, is still um, unlikely to be revived, even if the government can rebalance the economy. Um, do trade deficits matter? I think President Trump is wondering about this one. <laughs> no, he's not wondering about this one. By the way, anything I say about President Trump is uh, only valid until his next tweet. So <laughs> nobody tweet this. Um, so trade deficits, um, this is the UK and the US, both have run um, a, a fairly big trade deficit since the 1980s, and it is related to deindustrialization. So we'll say, I'll talk a bit more about it, but the thing to bear in mind is the UK and the US are the biggest exporter of services in the world. And the services market globally is not as open as manufactured goods. So that's one of the, the issues to, to think about in terms of the trade deficit. Um, can China grow rich? This is China's average income um, plotted against advanced economies. Uh, China um, is obviously 
richer than most emerging economies. But there's still quite a gap between where China is and the standard of living in the rest of the world. And this is actually one of the biggest challenges for this still communist nation, which is how to overcome the middle income country trap. Um, because of the 101 middle income countries in 1960, only 13 had become rich by 2008. So most countries um, remain at this middle income level and don't become rich. So can China grow rich? Um, if it does, then market-based reforms will have a lot of, would be the reason for it. That would be how communist China politically is communist, but in terms of the economy, um, it has adopted these reforms that have improved its living standards greatly. Um, what would Marx make of it? One of the thoughts that I had on this was um, Marx, if China became rich, Marx always believed there was scope for a revolution. <laughs> so given how, how high inequality is in China, I suppose he would think, well, they're now due for a revolution. <laughs> um, is inequality inevitable? This is actually um, the Gini coefficient, which is a measure of absolute inequality, mapping the United States against Canada for the last 30 years or so. Um, I used Canada because institutionally it's very similar to the United States, but Canada's levels of inequality um, are similar to, the, to Western Europe, um, whereas the United States is more unequal. So given they're both capitalist economies, the question here is, um, I don't think that inequality is, some inequality is probably inevitable, but the level is a political decision, and we can certainly discuss um, that as well. Um, are we at risk of repeating the 1930s? So this is Japan's economy um, in yen. So um, for, since its real estate crash in the early 1990s, Japan's economy has essentially stagnated. Um, it just hasn't um, really uh, grown. And debt deflation, uh, which is this idea that is, um, firms and households repay debt, you get price falls, and then with deflation, it becomes very difficult to get out of this trap because people keep putting off purchases, thinking they'll be cheaper in the future. And Japan's attempts to get out of it, um, I think is something we should all um, be watching. And they've been doing so for 30 years, and that is um, quite a long time to have been stagnant. To invest or not to invest, this is probably one of the biggest questions for Britain. I've highlighted the UK there. It has the lowest um, investment rate in the G7. Um, this gives you investment since 1997. So this is not just a function of austerity. So um, John Maynard Keynes is known for his ideas around state intervention. Um, but he also believed that government, we should socialize investment so that there was always government stepping in to boost investment which ultimately translates into growth. The challenge to this, of course, is does it add to the budget deficit? So we can discuss this, but in terms of where the UK sits, um, I think investment has been low, even relative to countries like the United States, which are similarly de-industrialized. What drives innovation? So this is creative destruction, I think, in action. So 
I know this sounds like a long time ago, but in 2008, the most popular smartphone in the world was Nokia. <laughs> Nokia controlled nearly half of global markets. Um, the second was BlackBerry. Um, that was just a decade ago. And in that period, they've been overtaken by Samsung, by Apple, and recently, of the top five smartphone makers in the world, um, the third, fourth, and fifth place are held by Chinese firms such as Huawei. So in the course of a decade, the fortunes of companies can change so quickly, even when they looked um, very dominant. Now, to Joseph Schumpeter, this would not be a surprise. To him, monopolies never last. Anytime you have a profit, somebody else will swoop in and challenge the monopolist. So creative destruction, he argues, is how economies actually run in cycles. These long periods of technology result in business cycles and economic cycles. And anyone who talks about equilibrium would be misguided because equilibrium is a long-run concept. Capitalism was always in flux. And I think these companies show um, how easy it is to be knocked off your perch. Um, and of course, that raises questions about Samsung, about Apple today. Can we learn from financial crises? Well, the first thing to say is um, this goes back to 1800. It's, a, it's work done by Reinhardt and Rogoff. Um, economies are always in crises. <laughs> There's a lot of crises. Um, and um, we, can, um, we can certainly um, discuss um, what um, we can uh, learn from the different crises that we've had. And a lot of um, the uh, rejection of capitalism that comes as a result of the crisis, that's also pretty um, uh, cyclical as well. Um, why are wages so low? So this is a chart of US household average income plotted against um, US GDP, um, taking 1984 as 100. So US household income has roughly been stagnant uh, for over 30 years. Median real wages, taking out inflation, has been stagnant for four decades, even while the US economy has been growing. So why um, have wages become disconnected with productivity, with output? And why wages are so low is, um, to me, one of the critical questions and a crucial part of what I was looking at in this book. And drawing on the ideas of imperfect competition, um, where have markets failed and what we need to do about it, that's what the Robinson approach um, begins to help us think about, um, as well as later work um, by others. Are central banks doing too much? I mentioned before Milton Friedman's work here, the US money supply contracting between 1929 and 1923, um, this is what made the Great Depression great. So they use this example that in 1920, GDP in the US fell by nearly a quarter. Unemployment rose to say 12%, and yet the roaring 20s were just that. And in 1929, when GDP fell by 12%, unemployment rose to 9%, so arguably a smaller economic downturn, um, we had the Great Depression. And they argue it was the money supply falling by a third. Um, that explained um, the Great Depression. Why are so few countries prosperous? I'm very hopeful that this chapter will become um, outdated soon because we've had extraordinary progress since the time of Douglas North. A billion people have been lifted out of poverty since 1990. In 1990, as you can see from this chart, 
over a third of the world lived on less than $1.25 per day, adjusted for what a dollar buys in their country. The equivalent measure is $1.90. We are at a historic point where one in 10 live in abject poverty. That's a tremendous amount of progress. That's not the same thing, of course, as people entering the middle class or countries becoming rich, but we have seen an extraordinary lifting out of poverty over the last 20, 30 years. A lot of that is due to China and to East Asia. But are there lessons that we can learn about institutions and reform that can help solve this problem? And this is, again, one of the issues very close to my heart that I think is very much worth um, debating. Um, I told you there are a lot of economic problems. <laughs> a couple more, and then I'll end. Um, do we face a slow growth future? This is the productivity slowdown across major developed economies um, since the mid-1980s. So I've hinted earlier. Um, are the technologies of the digital age comparable to um, the first and second industrial revolutions? What accounts for the productivity slowdown? One of the um, reasons is because of the aging populations of rich countries. Um, so this, by the way, was also an issue in the 1930s. Alvin Hansen coined the term secular stagnation that's being revived by Harvard's Larry Summers. Um, and he was worried about aging populations in the 1930s because um, aging populations have lower productivity. Lower productivity means slower growth. The older I get, the less I accept that productivity declines with age. <laughs> but this is one of the <laughs> this is one of the challenges that we, one of the challenges that we face. And then finally, is globalization in trouble? Um, Oh boy. Um, I think the debate here is how best to address the distributional impact of globalization. So the great economist who worked on this is Paul Samuelson, the first Nobel laureate, America's first Nobel laureate. Um, and his factor price equalization theorem essentially said that if a country like the United States traded with a poorer country like China, wages in the traded sector will converge. So for the US, that means stagnant wages. For China, that means rising wages. So what do you do about the losers from this process? Redistribution is part of the answer, but it hasn't been enough. So the current debate is over pre-distribution. Are there ways to equip workers and firms to anticipate an economy that's changing because of globalization, but actually more importantly, because of technology, which is actually a bigger factor in this wage stagnation story, but globalization is a factor. Um, he also wrote about ethical lenses. Um, he was a generalist, so he believed that you should judge a policy with an ethical lens. Think of this as John Rawls's veil of ignorance, um, where if you're not sure, if you stood behind a veil of ignorance, you wouldn't know if you would be affected by that policy, how would you vote on that policy? He also, his work also showed how hard it was to uh, get people to take that viewpoint. Um, but I think his main complaint is the quote I put up there. He was an advisor to successive US presidents. Um, and he said, I can't think of a president who has been overburdened by knowledge of economics. <laughs> um, so two more quotes to end with. Um, in terms of solving our economic problems, Robert Solow advises, don't omit qualifications. Never claim more than you can justify. An economist trying to talk to the general public gained respect by insisting on the qualifications, by not appearing as a pundit, as someone who knows all the answers. 
And then the last thought. The best reason to know some economics, I think, comes from Joan Robinson. She said, the purpose of studying economics is not to acquire a ready set of ready-made answers to economic questions, but to learn how to avoid being deceived by economists. Thank you very much. Thanks very much, uh, Linda, for that tour d'horizon. Uh, I'm going to open up the debate. I'm uh, at the LSE, which is called the London School of Economics. We always leave off the political science now, if you notice. It, it doesn't go on a business card, I was told. Um, but coming out of your, your, your wonderful uh, lecture, uh, great survey, um, one thing that comes out is that uh, most of the people you're talking about from Smith through are philosophers, you use that, uh, they're generalists. Uh, they're also historians of their own subject, aren't they? If you go back and look at Ricardo, he learned from Smith. Marx, if you read Marx, as I used to, and still do occasionally, uh, he's a great historian of economic and philosophical thought. Keynes's first great essay on economic thought was on uh, looking back at the Cambridge School, as you, as, as you know, and Thomas Malthus in particular, was a, he, he greatly admired Malthus's economics. Schumpeter's a great, great, one of the great books of economic history, and Hayek as well. And if you look at the first great economist at this school, uh, you mentioned obviously Hayek, but the two first great economists at this school was a man called Edwin Cannon, who lectured here for the better part of 30 years, and then of course Lionel Robbins, after whom the library is named, who brought Hayek to the school. And if you read, I actually read, as I said earlier, I've read Lionel Robbins's lectures, and the, the lectures are really lectures on the history of economics uh, and economic thought. Uh, very interesting. The uh, same account. And I suppose my question, which is, uh, I'd like you to reflect on, is what's happened to history in the study of economics today? Because if I were to look at the syllabuses or syllabi of most economists, not mentioning anybody here, of course, um, it seems to me that economics has become extraordinarily technical, highly mathematical, uh, and not very much economic history, history of economic thought. So why, and what are the consequences, and what can we do about it? Let's start with that one. If you can answer that, well, very well done, because I can't. And then we'll open it up to discussion from the floor. Over to you, Linda. Um, yeah, I think the um, current economists, not all of them, but many of them, and certainly the way that economics is taught, reflects a narrowing of the subject. So a lot of economists today specialize. And um, Paul Samuelson, when he passed away in 2009, was known as the last of the great general economists. So what they were willing to do, which is something which has become harder to do today, mm. is to answer the big questions, even if they were wrong. I pointed mm. out where a lot of them were wrong, where the analysis was imperfect, maybe the mathematics didn't work, um, the data wasn't perfect, but they, they attempted to address the big issues. And I think um, we've probably lost some of that with the more technically, technically oriented, um, the more technical the subject has become, which um, trace, is traced back to Irving Fisher. Mm. Um, when he introduced mathematics into the subject, he said that economics is, um, is like a fog. Mathematics is the light that helps you shine, shine through. Mm. But a lot of, I think, that's been taken now to be um, to make the subject um, a lot more mathematical mm -hmm. and technical and theoretical, because um, I mentioned before that David Ricardo was viewed as a theorist, and 
that caused them to be looked down upon. Um, and that, I think, has meant that economists today are not um, as broad. They don't learn much beyond the subject. And perhaps that's where the LSE um, can um, do more interdisciplinary um, uh, thinking around the subject, because you have all these social scientists here who can help um, develop um, at least some of the philosophy and the history mm. and the sociology and the psychology behind the subject, which mm. is why it's been so fascinating um, looking into the greats, because somebody like Douglas North, he stresses that what we actually need more is all of those things, that economics um, shouldn't be a narrow subject. It would serve its subject, which is the study of the economy, better if it were broader and people began to take those risks. So how do I think it can be fixed? I think uh, more collaboration across departments sure. um, and in a self-serving way, maybe read an economic history textbook from time to time. <laughs> just, one, just one additional little point, not, not a question. You mentioned the relation, everybody thinks of the LSE of having, having had, or maybe even today being slightly left of center. Uh, taxi drivers certainly think that, as I, as I, as I read this going. You're a bloody communist, aren't you? Um, somewhat untrue. Um, but it's quite interesting that the, the influence of free marketeers at the LSE is really crucial. Um, you know, it, there were left-wing guys in the government department and elsewhere, but, and there were some in the economics department, but the LSE economists were not, and certainly the, the Robbins and the Hayeks and, and others. You didn't mention, by the way, Ronald Coser. And I actually found letters from Hayek to Mrs. Thatcher, which are fascinating. Because Mrs. Thatcher later claimed Hayek as the great inspiration, and by the way, somebody else from the LSE too, but claimed Hayek and said, this is the great inspiration. Yes. And there are actually letters from, which I've come across, and I'm going to integrate in the study I'm doing, on Hayek's influence on, on, on Thatcher. And she said, you're going to do what I think is absolutely necessary. But there you go. So that's the left-wing tradition that the LSE exposed rather badly. Okay, enough from me. Let's now open up to uh, questions. Uh, have we got microphones around? Yeah, okay. There's somebody, there's a lady here, please. I'll take two or three at a time. We'll just move it along as rapidly as possible. Um, could you take that to the person at the back? Yeah, if you could, please, yeah. Hello, hi there. Um, just two things. Um, how did you decide how to leave out of the book? And did, were there any <laughs> runners-up who got, got cut <laughs> from the top got ten? Uh, and also, do you, what do you think the chances are of the next great economist actually being a psychologist in terms of the sort of upcoming importance of uh, kind of behavioural economics? And, okay, you know, a, thank you very much. Thank Two you. questions there. General at the back. Thank you, yes. I have a similar question about the origin of the book. Uh, what was it that made you decide to do all these different economists in one book? Did you, did you consider just doing a book about one of them, or did you consider writing a book about economics theory? What was the reason that you chose this particular approach? Okay, there was another question over here. Uh, gentleman at the front here, please. Thank you. Take, is that enough then? We'll take the three. Uh, you. Uh, you, you said that, uh, that Douglas North was, has been left behind by the numbers. Do you think that's fundamentally because economic institution building worldwide has improved, or is it just a broader macroeconomic effect? Mm. Okay, let's start with those, uh, those few questions, uh, yeah. Linda. Yeah, great questions. Thank you so much. Um, Runner-ups. Oh, this doesn't make them sound very good. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, um, 
is it like in the movies where you're either above the title or below the title? Um, the book actually, each chapter covers a huge economic debate around whether it's labor markets or growth or trade deficits. So within each of the chapters, a number of economists um, get mentioned, um, but the kind of the, the above the title um, are the ones who first came up with the idea and that started this, this kind of this field of inquiry. So in Irving Fisher's chapter, I write about Hyman Minsky, mm. um, who obviously mm. 2008 was known as a Minsky's moment, mm. according to The Economist, except he had passed away. <laughs> so he had labored in obscurity. But his theory, along with Irving Fisher's debt deflation, so his theory about how um, essentially markets are like Ponzi schemes when you have um, allow speculation um, unregulated. Um, Irving Fisher's debt deflation theory plus his theory explains the formation of a financial bubble and then its collapse and consequences. Um, and then there's, um, there's other uh, more recent economists that get mentioned, um, like uh, Darren Asimoglu and James Robinson, who's a political scientist at Chicago. Darren Asimoglu's at MIT. Their book was actually my, one of my references there, Why Nations Fail. Um, is an update on institutions, and they've become very influential in arguing exactly the point about economic institutions that I'll come to. Um, Daniel Kahneman, <laughs> um, and I think others, um, psychologists and political scientists, I think have begun to, not many of them, um, but they've sort of begun to get into the kind of very top echelons of economic thinking. and given my preference for uh, cross-disciplinary thought, I think this is a brilliant thing. And in fact, the only female Nobel laureate in economics um, um, is um, Eleanor North Ostrom. Mm. She was rejected for an economics postgraduate course, <laughs> ended up doing political science, and then won the Nobel Prize in economics. <laughs> and so I think uh, there's going to be probably more there. Um, in terms of um, why I chose uh, to do a lot of them, um, well, the, um, I think there were two things that really interested me in terms of um, telling a story, and this is probably my broadcasting background as well, is I think it needs to be a story of people's lives and ideas and trying to draw it together into a picture of growth but by telling it through people's perspectives. That's probably why there's a selection of the big thinkers around the ideas of growth and development. So in the book, um, a good portion of it is biography. Another portion of it are the kind of interesting things that I encountered on the road filming, for instance, before Donald Trump got elected. <laughs> and so, I, I, um, so it's like a marriage of some color to um, the actual ideas and then the analysis of the problems. And I think that's probably best done by trying to present a whole picture of the big economic growth and development challenges of our time. So, and the economic institutions, I think, yes, I think a number of economic institutions have improved. And I would credit people like Douglas North for pushing um, to focus on this area because one of the criticisms of the Washington Consensus, which is very much about, well, there's three pillars, privatization, trade, and financial liberalization, when that prescription was taken to developing countries and to the former Soviet Union and Central Eastern Europe in the 90s, it resulted in you know, a decade-long recession in the region adjacent to Western Europe. It became very much rejected by developing countries. So by looking at economic institutions such as 
control inflation, <laughs> things like that, have more credible policymakers, central banks, and looking at when institutions work. I think that has contributed to some of the big um, improvements um, of today. I would even credit China's remarkable growth in terms of lifting people out of poverty to changing its institutions from a set of centrally planned ones to ones which are more market-driven. Mm. Um, I say market-driven because my tip is in China, don't use communism. You know, they're still, they're still, don't, use, don't use capitalism. They're still communists. But market-driven is OK <laughs> and market-oriented. <laughs> Chinese characteristics. I yes, think. indeed. Uh, there's a gentleman over there, please. Uh, can I take anybody else from over here? Hand up anywhere? I just want to bring as many people in as possible. Yeah? Hi. Uh, you spoke about how um, Irving failed to see the uh, uh, Great Depression coming in the early 20th century. Um, equally, many economists didn't see the global uh, financial crisis coming. I think the Queen uh, came and pointed that out, didn't she? <laughs> my question is, um, given that one of their main goals, I think, should be to try and ward us off things like the Great Recessions, um, to what extent do economists actually understand recessions? I mean, with the global financial crisis, it sort of shows that economists don't understand the financial markets as such, especially the complexity of the US markets at the moment. Uh, what hope do we have that economists will learn from the, um, <laughs> those things and be able to understand the financial markets in particular? Could, could I add a supplement to that very quickly? Yes, Having been around long enough, I mean, as far as I can see, most of what social sciences have predicted has been wrong. And I would include economists within social sciences. I was a Sovietologist, and none of us saw the end of the Soviet economy coming. <laughs> Nobody saw the collapse of the Japanese economy going to happen. I don't think we actually anticipated the speed of China's rise, and of course we didn't anticipate 2008, except Nouriel Roubini and one or two other people. I know a few people got right. So is there an inherent problem which follows on from the gentleman's question there about the general problems of the social, are we too static? Mm. Is change too difficult for us to kind of comprehend, mm. build into our theory? Or are we just intellectually too conservative? What do you think? Thank you. Take that for the moment and then we'll come back because I think other people are thinking, yeah. Oh, there's oh, one here. Sorry, yeah, sorry. Yeah, okay. sorry, I can't see you over there. I was just gonna add to that do you think that that's a result of just human nature and that actually the diversity that we have in the world and now global economies that we cannot hope to predict that because that's more along the lines of chaos theory? <laughs> right. Okay. Anybody wow, what an audience. Anybody <laughs> wants to throw through something? Yes, gentlemen there. I think you're just going to have to stand up and shout. Um, just shout. No, no, it takes too long to get up. The you, yeah, yes, very good. Do it from there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Linda, do you agree with that? <laughs> yeah. These are very good questions. Um, I think in terms of um, your question this qu and the question around financial markets, I think um, the lack of incorporation of financial markets into most macro models, I think, has been now been recognized, arguably should be recognized earlier. But the thing with dominant paradigms is that they are slow to change. So when I mentioned Joan Robinson and introduced the imperfect competition, it took them over a century <laughs> to argue against perfectly clearing markets. And it became a field that perfect competition wasn't that realistic. And so I think there is a slowness to changing the dominant paradigm. But I think 
think micro foundations are now beginning to be introduced. But that doesn't necessarily mean coming to mixed point, economists can predict the next crisis. Um, I think one of the best economic forecasters I know says an economist can, um, on a good day, tell you what's happening today. <laughs> <laughs> economic forecasting, according to J.K. Galbraith, another great economist who I just um, probably I will include in my next book, he said, um, economic forecasting exists to make astrology look respectable. <laughs> um, and so I'm not confident we can predict um, the next um, recession. But I think what this crisis has shown is that we lack generalists. So those who do understand financial markets tend to be in financial economics, which is a micro subject. They don't really feed into the macro very much. Macroeconomists, those who do the big modeling, the big uh, look at the economy, um, they don't really know much about the way that financial markets work. And so I think being in silos doesn't help. Um, and I think if we wanted to make create more generalists, the crisis is a very good argument for why economists should be more general in the future. Um, and this question about chaos theory. <laughs> um, interestingly, um, one of Friedrich Hayek, who is a proponent of the free market, mm. um, and obviously a big legacy here at the LSC, um, he, his later writings, um, he was very much influenced by Ludwig von Mises and this idea of spontaneous order. And he later on believed that it was impossible for the human mind to really um, you know, capture all that was necessary to um, basically create, um, you know, make sense of what was happening. And so actually his legacy, and I think this is um, you know, appropriate since we're here at the LSE, um, there's, is that, um, according to Larry Fisher, this is the Hayek legacy, is that the invisible hand is better than the unhidden hand um, because you cannot really expect individuals, even in a committee, to make decisions that could encompass the complexity of the world that we live in. Um, so, but the only thing is, he was very much a free marketeer, free marketer. So, um, looking at financial markets, his argument probably would have been um, they're overregulated. If you didn't regulate them very much, they would govern themselves. So I'm giving that as a, a more accurate depiction of uh, perhaps how he would feel on the question that we just addressed. Um, and then on this question about um, productivity and services, I, yeah, I, a lot of the, um, the first chapter of the book is around um, problems in terms of the rebalancing debate, including we seem to have an affinity for manufacturing. Um, but most of us work in the services economy and how you measure that and what it is, understanding it, the value of it, influences that debate as well as the productivity debate. So the example that I use is um, how many of you have been in a meeting where it was just a waste of time? <laughs> Okay, don't answer. <laughs> I mean, everybody, I think, everybody, everybody. But, you know, on occasion, <laughs> on occasion, you'll go to a meeting, you brainstorm, you have a great idea comes out. And yet, more than three quarters of the economy is services. Most of us spend our days in front of a computer, in meetings, um, writing reports, coding. Um, we're not producing widgets. And yet, the measurement of output in the sector is so difficult. And 
So I suspect we would have less of a productivity paradox, maybe even less of an aversion to services, if we could probably encap uh, basically rethink what we, what we know as services and what we think of as services um, and value it, because I think most of us would rather work in an office than on a factory floor, even though there is scope for that. But to think we could rebalance the economy towards manufacturing in that sense, I think, um, is partly due to this um, services not quite being um, well understood and certainly not well measured. I'll give you another example. So in one of my uh, BBC radio programs, um, documentary, we asked a consultancy about measuring services. And I won't name the consultancy, um, but he said, well, this, consultant, this consultancy report, um, after the economy started to recover, we doubled the price. <laughs> for the same report. <laughs> so in GDP terms, output just increased by 100%. <laughs> but he said it's the same report. Um, and so I think separating issues of quality, pricing, all of that is very complicated in the services sector. So yeah, getting okay. rid of productivity as a measure, but think of the poor civil servants. <laughs> okay, we've got time for one more round of questions, if anybody wants to come up with that. Yeah? No? So we talked about how the rising inequality, well, rising lack of poverty. So now one in 10 are in absolute poverty. And I'm not an expert, but I watched a YouTube video from The Economist saying that, yes, that's true. But because the population has risen, that means that there's still more people in poverty. So do you think we've actually made progress or we're just using the right statistics to make it look like we have anybody from upstairs there just looking Little around one. for hands uh, chap over here yeah please uh, um, <coughs> comparing with how um, economies were structured in the past in the time of Adam Smith Karl Marx um, in the 18th and 19th century uh, and comparing them to now and how uh, the complexity of them has risen to a point where it can be hard to handle all the data. Um, are generalizations on how economic theory works now impossible to achieve, or are we able to keep up with all the kind of data points and create and the next great economic idea? Thank you. Okay, good question, big data yeah, question. Any more? Yeah, lady over there, good, excellent. Thank you very much. <coughs> me. Um, yeah, hi. I'm trying to phrase this as a question, um, but, so, unfortunately, it seems that countries that have uh, the most, uh, the least inequality, if you look at the difference between Canada and America, they're the ones that tend to also have, um, unfortunately, stricter immigration policies. So, if you look at Denmark and Sweden, um, how can we, or, or what are the factors that contribute to that, and, and how, what can economics tell us about that? Okay, that's a good one. Uh, which also is a Trump question, in a way, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> We have to mention Trump. Is Trump a Ricardian? I think he's a Keynesian. I think, yeah, no, I think he's, he's a Keynesian. Keynesian. <laughs> Gosh, that's a nice way to describe Donald Trump, but anyway, I've never heard him described like that before. Why don't we pick up on those uh, good okay. questions there, Linda? And I think that would bring us probably close to the end as well. Um, yeah, so I think um, 
In terms of um, poverty, it is a, um, so a billion people have been lifted out of poverty since 1990. So at the moment, there are 767 million people <coughs> who live in what's called extreme poverty, so less than $1.90 per day. Um, but um, where you find those people is where this kind of rate versus numbers thing comes into play. So half of the extremely poor um, live in sub-Saharan Africa. And sub-Saharan Africa is the only region in the world in which the poverty rate has fallen, but the numbers in poverty have risen. So because of population, the rate has fallen. But actually, in absolute terms, um, the number of people in poverty has increased. And dramatically, in some countries like Tanzania, which has seen a doubling of the number of people who live in extreme poverty. So I think um, it's very um, important to focus on the absolute numbers um, of people who live in poverty for this reason. Um, rates don't really mean anything if you're talking about people who are desperately poor. And I suppose the other thing to say is that um, I'm, not con I'm not convinced the lessons of the past since 1990 will be enough to end poverty looking ahead. And the reason I say that is because Africa was the second fastest growing region in the world after Asia. Um, and yet, um, the levels of poverty that we just discussed um, haven't actually um, fallen. They've risen. And that's, because, that's due to inequality. So growth enough alone is not enough. But that means we have to have new ways of thinking about how to tackle extreme poverty, which in a prosperous world we really should be um, tackling. Um, and finally, to say, even if we were to achieve this goal of eradicating extreme poverty by 2030, which is the very first Millennium Development Goal adopted by the UN and all the nations around the world, that doesn't mean you've ended poverty. Uh, because if you make $1.91 a day, you're still poor. Um, this is just a milestone to get us to the next step. But to me, that is the, um, the question of our time. And a lot of my own work is in economic development, um, which is how is it possible in the 21st century we still have so many countries um, which are poor, and yet we've seen this impressive progress of among emerging economies. But I think there's a lot more to be done there. So, um, And in terms of um, how complex data is, um, yeah, I think in this era, it's, um, it is very, very challenging. Um, I think the, you know, thinking about Milton Friedman when he was writing uh, A Monetary History of the United States, he was the, him and Anna Jacobson Schwartz were the first ones to measure money supply. <laughs> and this was, you know, work that was done 50 years ago. There were no measurements um, of even money supply. And yet it was a, you know, simpler time. So now we have, I think very complex economic data, markets, digital markets that are very difficult to measure. I think it is harder to have a theory of everything. <laughs> so when economists are generalists, I don't think necessarily they should try the physics um, question, which is can you come up with something that can explain you know, everything, model the whole thing. But I think you can tackle big questions in quantitative and qualitative ways to try and bring a broader understanding um, of whatever issue you're looking at, whether it's poverty, for which institutions do matter, or whether it's culture, which is how you improve the rule of law in a lot of countries, um, how you raise the quality of growth, which is the political choice around inequality. Inequality is a choice politicians make. Economics gives you the analysis and the tools, but why shouldn't we be looking much more broadly 
and how inequality feeds into a lot of other issues. So to me, this is an exciting time for economics because it is a time to rethink um, where we are at and the big questions. And I actually think if you're um, a student researcher at this time or a policymaker, it's a great time. This is a time the great thinkers would have relished. Um, it's, a, it's a nice challenging time because the consensus has broken down. Um, and then um, immigration, yeah, great uh, challenging question. <laughs> so um, there's, a, um, there's an economic article called I Ran Four Million Regressions, <laughs> which um, <laughs> essentially um, looks at all the factors that determine um, economic growth. And you're right, um, homogeneity is one of the traits that often explains significantly levels of, of growth. Um, I think the questions around that are, of course, a bit of sample selection because some of the most equal and prosperous countries are the Nordic countries. And I think there are always things which are not quite captured in the dummy variables. Uh, one of my favorite um, articles actually is an article, a title, article titles is actually an article in um, uh, Feminist Economics, um, which is titled, When Gender is No Longer a Dummy Variable. <laughs> So there's a lot of dummy variables. A lot of work is being done by the unmeasured part. Um, so I think immigration economic studies show, on average, are good for an economy. Um, the question around redistribution, which you rightly point to, does have to do with um, acceptance of society, willingness to contribute, all of that. I think all of that is part of um, part of the difficult mix of discussing inequality, social welfare. Um, but because I think of the time we're in, which is a breakdown of the consensus, and a lot more people are challenging um, current policies in particular, it's a good time to look again at these studies and try to get beyond um, the dummy variables, the aggregation. Um, and I guess that's probably a good note to, to end on, which um, I said a moment ago, I actually think um, economics is, is entering a really fascinating phase um, because there's so much um, rethinking around big questions, how we approach the subject, what we need in the subject. It's a good time to reinvent the subject. This is a time when people make their mark by coming up with new ideas. Um, so I hope um, that um, you have taken away some of the ideas from the great thinkers of the past and why it is it's so important to know history um, because I think um, seeing how they manage the big achievements of their times um, points us to, I think, some hope that we'll be able to cope with our big economic challenges. After all, we are not facing the Great Depression, the rise of fascism, <laughs> the devastation of World War II, um, nothing like that. So I think this is um, a good time uh, to be thinking about learning um, economics and a bit of history. Thank you so much for being here with me this evening. Thank you.